So good to see everybody tonight. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we'll pick up in verse 8, verse 8 through 11. The shortest of all the seven letters to the seven churches, we come to the church tonight at Smyrna. And again, remembering that these churches represent practically in their day, perennially throughout church history, and prophetically to a very specific time in the history of the church. And so tonight we find the fearful church, the ritualistic church, and the persecuted church. As we look at this particular church tonight, the church of Smyrna, it has so many parallels to the persecuted church in our world today, we could just simply say this applies to the the persecuted church. We can think of the Coptic Christians that just lost their lives in Egypt. We can think of the Sudanese, our brother Chuck uh, ministered to for so many years in South Sudan, in a land that's predominantly Muslim. We, we can think of the Christians who are in uh, Nigeria, parts of Nigeria and parts of the Congo that are uh, being attacked and killed by Boko Haram. We can think of the Libyan Christians under Muammar Gaddafi. We can certainly think of all of the Iranian Christians, those who uh, for a long time uh, had, a, had a very, very, very healthy population of Christians in what uh, was at the time of this writing the land of Persia. We can think of the Armenian Christians that is in modern that were in modern day Turkey, um, persecuted, wiped out during the Armenian genocide. One point maybe six to one point eight million Christians lost their lives. We can think of Christians being persecuted throughout all of the time of the Church Age. But as we look at this particular church, we find a church that was. Founded in about AD 100, so this particular vision received by John, uh, he's an old man, he's nearly 90 years old, and so as this church in Smyrna is, is birthed, uh, it's birthed in persecution. And yet somehow, miraculously, it survives and thrives. Uh, it, it actually prospers under that persecution. And so it has been throughout all of church history that the church of God, true Christian churches, have actually grown immensely under persecution. It's true in our own private lives that we grow in persecution. Um, Daryl and I were talking a little bit before service, and in, uh, in his workplace he's got these guys that are, uh, questioning our faith, questioning his faith. And it's through that persecution that God has opened the door for him to minister to a group of them in a Bible study. And so it's that persecution that very often causes the deepest growth. Because persecution will do, generally speaking, one of two things. You will either cave from lack of faith, give up and walk away, or you will be immensely strengthened because you not only have persevered, but you have actually grown through that persecution. And that was the church at Smyrna. And so would you pray with me? Father, 
We are so grateful for the power of your word to transform uh, the very intents of our hearts, our thoughts, God, our minds, our intellects, but also, Lord, and more importantly, our spirit. Lord, as we think back on what your church has endured, and yet it still flourishes, the fears that we personally have, Lord, the rituals sometimes that we undertake, and yet, God, as we're persecuted and questioned, uh, it is at that place that we often most deeply grow. And so, Lord, we give you this time tonight. We pray that your word would speak to us. Lord Jesus, thank you for caring enough to remind us that you've got everything under control, even persecution. And so, Lord, we give you the study. We ask that you would teach us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 8 here in Revelation 2. And it begins to the angel of the church in Smyrna write. And so again, the angels, not their traditional angel that we think of, but rather the word there translated angel simply means messenger or herald, oracle, speaker, teacher. Uh, and very specifically, we would translate it probably best as pastor. The pastor of the church. Those who would speak for the Lord in the church at Smyrna. These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. So it becomes again very clear who's writing. It becomes very clear who he's writing to and becomes also very clear what he's writing about as we continue on. For I know your works. Now notice these things and as you lump them together we'll look at them individually in a bit. But notice how he begins to speak to these things, which seemingly are all not only very difficult, but there's also to this church no condemnation. There's no negative thing spoken to them. And very often that is true when our lives are marked by fighting the fight and waging the war. The Lord only allows us to be tempted and tested so far. And he does not allow that indefinitely. But it is in that struggle, that, that battle, that war that even we wage today, maybe just in our hearts or in our minds, uh, that the Lord speaks to us about the things in our lives which, frankly, we like to see changed very often. Amen? I don't know anybody that enjoys poverty. I know very few people who like to be persecuted generally. Uh, I know people that kind of do blaspheme themselves, but don't like to be blasphemed about. And so when you look at these things, you can very clearly uh, begin to, to look at, at this life that they're living and realize it wasn't all that much fun. It was tough. It was hard. I know your works, tribulation and poverty. And you may have in quotations, but are rich. And the reason it's in quotations is it's not found in the, in the largest body of the manuscripts, but it's actually a truth. Very often when you see words in quotation, especially in the New King James or sometimes even in the King James, it's, it's drawing your attention to the textual evidence that's found in the very best manuscripts, in this case the Masoretic text. And so as you look at these, these words, um, they're there, and they're for you to ponder, and they're certainly true, because in Christ are we not rich. Amen? Okay, so he's just drawing attention to the real truth here. Uh, you're poor, but actually you're very rich. 
Uh, your father owns the sheep and cattle on a thousand hills, the gold and silver in every mine, and the earth and the fullness thereof. You are, in fact, rich. Amen? Now, you may not have all those riches in your pocket tonight, but you are rich. So the poverty that we have is what we struggle through on this earth. And so that can be a struggle. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not. And I want you to read that very carefully. This was not really Jews. These were people who had a version of Judaism that they had kind of taken out of true Judaism and and transformed into something that we would probably call uh, a, maybe a Galatianist attitude. They were trying to blend together Judaism and Christianity and, and and try and force people into keeping the law, and they were they were really messed up. And so these people, whom claim to speak for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, which was banished at the cross of Christ, right? This is New Testament times. This is long after Jesus has gone back to heaven. So the new covenant's in effect. So they're actually claiming to want to go back to the old ways of the Jewish people, which were no longer valid as a way of salvation, relationally, character of God. God's character hadn't changed. He still loved all mankind. But there's no such thing as a, as a, as a Jewish Christian if you want to look at it that way. You're a Christian who happens to be a Jew. And so there, you don't need to blend the two. You don't need to keep all of the feast days and all those things. They're very important and very wonderful, by the way. But they're unnecessary for your relationship with God. And so they're trying to make them necessary again. They'd take people out and say, well, you have to be circumcised if you're a male. You've got to keep the feast days. And they were claiming to actually be Jews and try and get the Christians to go into bondage. And so he says to them, the Lord does, but are of a synagogue of Satan. You don't want God calling your church that. You're a synagogue of Satan. That would be very, very difficult in a land that's already ruled by the Romans, that was founded by the Greeks, uh, that had a very, very long history of persecuting virtually every religion except for the pantheism of the Greek gods and the pantheism or multiplicity of gods of the Romans. And so he says, look, even, even, the, even the Jewish people who ought to be your, your Messiah, your king, your savior, is actually a, a Jewish carpenter. But even the Jews are against you in this case, but they're not real Jews. They couldn't catch a break. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. And so he begins now to focus in on what will come later. For indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. You can see the persecution. You, you can see the generalization of what's beginning to happen here. That you may be tested. There are two reasons chiefly that you are tested. One is the enemy and the other is God. One to destroy and one to build up. You're about to be tested. So whether you're tested by the enemy or by God, the net result is you can prosper under either. You can grow under either. 
The enemy's trying to destroy you. You survive that test. You grow in faith. God is allowing you to be tested. You're testing your strength of your walk with him, your, your desire to fulfill God's things in your life. So testing in and of itself is not bad. But they were going to be severely tested. Now probably most of you know somebody or maybe somebody of a distant uh, relationship somehow that's maybe gone to jail or spent some time in prison. Uh, it, it seems like almost everybody has one of those persons in your family. We have one in ours. Uh, but I can tell you this. I've never heard anybody go, man, I just had a blast in prison. And today, prison actually is a blast. For those of you who don't know much about our history here in the American Southwest, uh, the Yuma Territorial Prison in Yuma, Arizona, one of the most famous of all the territorial prisons from the 1800s, one out of every three prisoners who went there ultimately died in prison. It often reaches 120 to 130 inside of those adobe buildings that were the prison there. Prison today is color TV and three square meals and get your law degree. But then it was, if you went to prison, if somebody didn't bring you food, you died. If someone on the outside didn't care for you and make sure you had clothes, by the time you'd been there a while, you would actually be naked. Prison was the real deal in Shmirna. They would be tested. And he goes on and says you will have tribulation. Not the tribulation. Tribulation in the general sense. You will have tribulation. Uh, that means the, the racking of one's soul in every way imaginable, ultimately, for ten days. But be faithful unto death. Be faithful until death. Be faithful until it kills you, is actually what's being said there. Be faithful all the way until you actually die from these things that are about to happen. Now, I don't know about you, but if somebody came to me and said, you're going to go through a trial and you need to endure it until you die, that's not going to be that big of an encouragement to me. I'm thinking, this is like, this is not a good thing. But the Lord is actually trying to prepare them for something that was going to come upon them as a church that would literally test them from the time it began to the time that they died. Because it would be during that time from A.D. 100 to around A.D. 300, 312, under the last reign of Domiclation, that they would be so persecuted that if you were a Christian, generally speaking, it cost virtually everyone their life. And we'll get to that in a little bit. Be faithful unto death, until death, and I will give you, I love that, the crown of life. And so in this place, give you a little brief history. Smyrna is actually in modern day Turkey. It's Izmir, Turkey. It's a seaport. It's about 40 miles north. So if you look on a map, you look north of Ephesus, about 40 miles right on the coast. Uh, it was the second most prosperous city in Asia Minor, second only to Ephesus. Uh, the harbor that was there was one of the great harbors of the Roman world. It was a wonderful harbor that was well protected from the open Mediterranean Ocean. 
And that harbor stood at the end of a great road called the Golden Road. That Golden Road descended down for the, from the mountains of Turkey all the way down to the coast. And along that road, basically the city kind of lined it like we see in, in some of the older cities in the United States to where there's a Broadway and it was on, every building was on Broadway. You can kind of look at the Golden Road. Uh, in Smyrna is like the Broadway of the ancient world. Matter of fact, it was a little more than two miles long, and along the edges of those roads, you had the courts near the seaport where the Romans held court. Uh, it, it was like Ephesus, a center for the worship of the, the Roman emperor God, because if you remember, as I've shared with you, the Roman Caesars demanded to be worshipped as God. They were embodiment uh, of Zeus while they were here on the earth. Uh, there was a temple dedicated to Tiberius and, and Leva, a, a temple dedicated to the Roman Senate. Uh, there was a temple to Dea Roma, which is the Roman goddess of Rome. Uh, Smyrna was, was just this incredible city that was rich in political and cultural history, and it was a place where the whole world went to trade goods. But it was not a good place to be a Christian. It was a really good place to be a heathen. And as you went up that golden street, you would eventually come to the to Mount Pagos. And on top of Mount Pagos, uh, multiple temples, one to Ascalupus, which is the, if you look on your doctor's card, you probably will see that little uh, set of wings with a staff with a couple of serpents twisted around it. That's actually the Roman god of medicine. This was the home place, the home temple. Uh, of that Roman god, there was a temple there to Homer. If you've ever read the Iliad or or the poem Homer's Odyssey, uh, Homer was was from uh, Smyrna in, in modern day Turkey. And if you would finally make your way all the way up to the top, there was actually an Acropolis, uh, a large open colonnaded temple uh, that had been dedicated uh, to the god Zeus. And so, by the time you got done touring the city. You understood everything about paganism. It was as pagan in the worship of pagan gods as one could get. It was also the center, and it's interesting that we should think on these things, because it was pagan. There was no evidence of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, there, there was no attention to that one God. And that was the uniqueness of the Jewish faith originally. It would be the, also the uniqueness of the Christian faith, and then along would come in 613 A.D. the Muslim faith. So three monotheistic religions. Mono meaning singular and theism meaning God. One God. So this was a place of many gods. And it was also a place, oddly enough, dedicated to sport. And at the top, next to the Temple of Zeus, if you go to this city today, the ruins of these things are still there. And you can see the ancient Roman amphitheater uh, dedicated there uh, on to the top of Mount Pagos that seated around 20,000 people. Now, to put that in perspective for you, the Staples Center holds about 19,000. It was a large sporting venue. And so they faced the persecution, not only of the godless pagans who worshipped about anything and everything, but also the remnant people who said, hey, we're actually the remaining Jews, the synagogue of Satan. And so it was a crazy place to be a Christian. 
And so Jesus describes himself in a couple of ways. Notice what he says here. These things, says the first and the last. These are polar opposites, by the way. The first and the last, by nature, in and of itself, can't also be dead. Because if you're first and you're last, you would think that first to last is alive between the two points, right? And yet it says at the same time, who was dead and came to life. So first and last, beginning to end, was and is and is to come, but also at some point in time, as Daniel rightly said, until he's cut off. So Jesus is saying, look, these things says the Lord. Jesus rose from the dead, and in doing so, Notice what 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says there, and it begins in verse 54. And so when this corruptible put on incorruption, you see, when you gave your life to Christ, um, you also put, took that corruptible person and, and you gave it because of the work of Christ on the cross, an incorruptible new nature that is found in Jesus. And so you became identified, literally the book of Colossians says, hidden in him. So that you are now, you now have your identity in Christ. It's put on incorruption. This mortal has put on immortality. And of course, that will happen when you actually die, right? You're alive, you're mortal, you croak, and then, aha! That's what he meant. Hi, Jesus. Wow. Streets of gold. It's true. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that was written. Now think of this is David. Death is swallowed up in victory. Amen? You see, the world fears death. The world looks at death as, as something that is to be feared. Uh, unfortunately, I've done way too many funerals. I spent way too much time with people who are nearing that time when they're going to take their last breath. And when they don't know Jesus... It is a real bummer. It's horrible. Absolutely, unbelievably horrible because they are afraid. The fear is overwhelming and gripping. But when you do know Jesus, it is a far different story. Because you're passing from mortal to immortal. You're passing from that which is right now to that which will always be forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Death, where is your sting? Hades, where is your victory? You see, until Jesus set the captives free, Hades was filled with the righteous dead and the unrighteous dead. Two compartments, Abraham's bosom. That place where Abraham dwelt. That place the poor man dies and he descends. And there he is in Luke 16 and he's having a conversation. Father Abraham, send that poor dead dude over here to come bring us some water. Because it's really hot where we're at. And he says, there's a great gulf fixed between us and I cannot come. Well, at least go back and tell my family then. If they won't believe while you're alive, they're not going to believe even if an angel came and spoke to them. You see, death used to be victorious. 
death is no longer victorious because today, right now, to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. Hades, where's your victory? The sting of death is sin. You you see right now, the sting of death, that thing which reminds us that we're mortal, is our capacity to sin as Christians. We're like, oh man, I'm still in this rotten body of death. Amen? When you have those thoughts you shouldn't have, when you do those things you shouldn't do, when you say those things you shouldn't say, you go, oh man, i still got a little bit of dead on me. Now, I don't know how many of you, you know, if you've grown up here in Southern California, when we had a little more open space, we used to have skunks everywhere here. I had an opportunity as a young teenager to experience Ode Skunk. Now, I figured that when a skunk was hit and dead on the side of the road, that it was fairly benign. Now, I'm here to tell you that that smell of the dead skunk uh, doesn't come off until you burn your clothes and rinse yourself in tomato juice and or vinegar. You see, death has a smell. Death has something that when you touch it, it affects you. It doesn't matter how much of it you get on you, there's still that little tinge of death. The tinge of the, the smell of death, the, the skunk that is sin in our lives. The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. Doesn't that sound strange to you? But isn't it so true? Because the law couldn't save anyone. And so when you looked at the law, sin being compared to the law, you're going, man, I am hopeless. There is no hope in this law. I always encourage you, just pull up the Ten Commandments, read the Ten Commandments, and then go try and do the Ten Commandments. You're going to fail. Because the first moment you get an opportunity, you're going to covet someone's car. Or you're going to think on something that somebody already has. Or you're going to have an issue with maybe uh, giving the Lord His day in your life. Amen? Giving Him the whole day. How many times are you, well, you know, Lord, I want to just spend time with you. And then all of a sudden you remember what game's on or whatever's going to... Again, not that those things are bad. But you're, you're going to be focused somewhere else. Amen? You see, the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, my beloved brethren, it says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the labor of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in Him. You see, they were faced with what seemed like vain labor. You you mean we're going to be persecuted for our whole lives and then croak? You see, if you were looking at things the way the world looks at it, that would be about as horrible a sentence as you could be given. But because of Christ, death, where is your sting? It no longer has the ability to zap you. You know, we have those stupid yellow jackets here, amen? And you're out, you're just trying to have a nice, so you've got your glass of tea, and, and right in your lip. And you're like, ah, 
I'm just enjoying my glass of tea. It's like this whole world. You can't even enjoy a glass of tea without getting stung in the lip by something you didn't make, that you didn't want, that came just because you happened to be somewhere at some point in time. That's the, the way the world is. There isn't any hope in this world. The law can't do it, and death would take you apart from Christ. But praise God. You can be steadfast and immovable and just abound in his labors because they're not in vain in him. Basically, when Jesus rose from the dead, he killed death in doing that. Think about it. He actually stabbed death in the heart, if you will. Death used to be the final end, a terrible end for the human condition. And now death in Christ Jesus is dead Amen? I know your works. I know your works, tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Can I just remind you that the Lord sees everything in your life? Everything, everything you go through. Every pain you endure, every hurtful thing that's said to you, every single tidbit of all that junk that goes on in your life. The word tribulation here means pressure from the outside. It means distress. When you're pressured into the point of just distress. When you're just like, man, I can't take any more pressure. We talk about it, we use tribulation actually in, in the context of our work life at times. Amen? You're at work and you know, you've got this deadline and that thing to do and all this stuff is going on and, and you're being pressed in on and you just come to distress. Your mind is going to bow up. So I can't take any more. I'm going to go eat a couple of double-doubles and cool off. That was them. They were pressed in, and the problem was with their lives, they were pressed in and distressed, and there wasn't a thing they could do about it. Because the very next day brought more pressure and more distress and more problems and more poverty. And he says, look, the, the church here in Smyrna, because they wouldn't offer offerings to the false gods of the Greeks and the Romans, they were destitute. They couldn't get jobs. They were kicked out of everywhere. They couldn't get the finest meats because they were offered in the temples to these pagan gods and they wouldn't take them. That's where most people got their meat during that day and time, was at the temple. So if you wanted to have a, a, a nice filet mignon, you had to go to the temple of Zeus and say, hey, I'll take a hunk of that. But in doing so, you had to bow down to Zeus. These Christians said, ain't doing it. So they got veggie burgers. They're out there pressing wheat together, trying to, it kind of looks like a steak. They were hungry constantly. They were in pain and anguish. But because they loved the Lord, they said, I'd rather go to bed hungry than bow to a false god. Boy. That's a pretty tough act to follow as the church in America, isn't it? And again, don't let me, I don't want anyone to think that it's wrong for you to have good things that God's placed in your, it's not, it's not, it's not at all. But I can tell you this, 
Sometimes I think we miss opportunities to grow when we have so much that we don't even know how the rest of the world lives. I was talking with Mario yesterday. It's like, you know, we, we have to get going on some missions trips and take people into the field and go, you know what it's like to have to walk two, three, four miles to go get clean water in a five-gallon bucket and put it on your head? I want to challenge you. Grab a five-gallon bucket, fill it with water, put it on your head. That's going to weigh 40 to 50 pounds, by the way, depending on how full it is. And then let that nice little ring that's on the bottom of those buckets, you know, a little pointy dot right in the middle, put that right in the top of your scalp, and you walk four or five miles with a 40-gallon bucket of water on your head so that your kids don't die. Go trade bundles of straw so that you can have some grasshoppers to eat. Ask our brother Chuck what he's seen in South Sudan. You see, we think about persecution. You know, oh gosh, you know, I've got to drive four miles now to the nearest in and out. That's, to us, that's persecution. You know, when you go down the hill and your favorite outlet store is closed. Ah! No more Columbia Outfitters. It's like, what's happening to our world? These guys wouldn't bow. And because they wouldn't bow, they were hungry. Now, I think that day may be coming back to this earth. What our Bible says is we get further into this book, you're going to see that. On top of that, that wasn't bad enough. They were slandered constantly. They were picked on mercilessly. They were just abused verbally everywhere they went. Ah, there's those stupid Christians. I mean, we are Jews. Matter of fact, we're such good Jews that we bow to the, to the Greek gods and to the Roman gods, and we just love everybody. But those Christians... They're not tolerant like we are. Christianity, by definition, in a very strong sense, must be intolerant because we can't tolerate sin. Remember last time? We're to hate the things that God hates. We need to have a certain hate quotient against evil, against unholiness, against ungodliness. We have to have that. These guys actually practiced that hate we saw last time, and that got them poverty. Tribulation and blasphemy. And so when you look at this, they stood their ground in an evil day. That tribulation didn't move them. Slander didn't move them. The religious persecution couldn't move them. Nothing could move them. Exactly as the book of Acts says, none of these things move me. I can get moved. You see, they really were rich. They weren't rich in temporary things. They were rich in permanent things. Amen? You know why Jesus, that's why Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Amen? Not on earth where, where moths will eat it and rust will corrode it, but in heaven. That's what they were doing. They were laying it up, and it cost them dearly. 
I also want you to know, and it's very clear here because of how this is stated, that when you faithfully walk with the Lord, God's got your back. Now, He may let you go through some stuff that you don't like and don't want, but in the end, you can trust Him that it's going to be real good at the end. You see, all our successes here on this earth, contrary to modern thinking, you see a lot of people live their life for the here and now and not the hereafter, amen? We're to actually live our lives for the hereafter, not the here and now. Again, don't mistake what I'm saying. It's totally fine to have a nice house. It's okay to have a nice car. All those things, they're all good. I want you to mistake what I'm saying here. But that's not your life. You're not, your life is not the accumulation of things. It's not the next leap, if you will, in, in things of this earth. It's that final leap into the things of heaven. That's your real life. That's what actually matters. That's why Paul in Philippians chapter 2, beginning there in verse 7, says, But the things that were gained to me, and all these things, the things that I've accumulated in this life, things that other people would look at, they're actually gained to me. People would say, My balance sheet went up, my assets are increasing. We do that in accounting. You, you always want your balance sheet to grow and you want your assets to exceed your liabilities. Amen? Everybody wants that. That's when you look at your checkbook. You don't actually have money just because you have checks. You have to have money. Then the checks are actually worth something, okay? That's the principle there. Checks does not equal money. Money equals money. But in a real sense, these things are gained to me. All our stuff on this earth. You know, sometimes, I don't know if you do this, I look at my, I, because I've been to some very poor places on this planet, and I look in my closet and I'm going, God, God forgive me for owning so many clothes. I don't even know how they got there. And I look at them and some of them are, you know, they're older than my children. <laughs> and they're pretty old. Like, maybe I should think about giving that away. And then I realized Jesus was right. The moths have eaten it. And the rust has corroded it. But those things which I have been gained to me, these things I've counted lost for Christ. And what it, it's an accounting term. It says I've literally taken them from one part of the balance sheet to another part of the profit and loss. I've said these things used to be gained to me. They were an asset, and I put them over here as if they were a liability. Isn't that crazy? Take your assets and move them over to liabilities because trusting in your assets on this earth is a liability to us as Christians. Because it can be gone like that. There are people in this room that I know that very thing has happened to you. You thought it was going to be this way and it ended up being this way. You'd done all the right things and all of a sudden, boom, there it is. You're, you're faced with something unexpected that you didn't earn, you don't deserve. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss through the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And then he goes on to say something that's pretty striking. For I count them as rubbish. And the word translated there is actually manure. I count it as a manure pile that I may gain Christ and be found in him 
not having my own righteousness, which would be from the law. In Paul's case, because he was a Jew, he could have said, look, of the things of the law, I'm spotless. I haven't done anything wrong against the law. But that which is from faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship notice of his sufferings being conformed to his death. It's exactly what Smyrna was going to experience, the loss of all things. And they counted them as rubbish. They said, who cares? I've got Jesus. Who cares? I've got Jesus. Now, I'm not telling you to be flippant. I'm not suggesting to you that, you know, you lose everything. You run out in the street and hold up a sign. I'm the world's biggest loser and I'm so happy. I'm not saying that. Of course, it hurts to lose things. But what I am saying, in the end, as a child of God, you can fold up that sign and say, it really doesn't matter. Look at this. Look at my heaven. Look at my Lord. Connie and I were driving today. I was thinking on our family and how God has blessed us. And I know many of you know this, and I also know that some of you are going through the pain of the opposite. When I look at my sons, I know that they love Jesus. And no matter what happens on this earth, and we're going to spend eternity together, I'm golden. Don't care what happens. Because I know in the end, I'm going to be grinning from ear to ear. Now, does that mean I want to lose either one of them? Heavens, no. Heavens, no. But I know heaven is the great equalizer. The church at Smyrna was being reminded of that very thing. When we have God's perspective on suffering, it begins to make us strong, begins to empower us, so to speak, and it takes away our fear. Notice what he says in verse 10. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer, for indeed the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation for ten days, but be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now it begins to, to kind of look at this from a very unique perspective, that there's something to this testing. It's not just testing for testing's sake. You know, back in the day, there used to be a rumor running around, especially when I was when I was of the draft age, that if you got drafted into the Marine Corps, one of the things that they would have you do is go out in the middle of the of nowhere. The drill sergeant would say to you, "I want you to dig a hole right here," and the moment you got down over your head, they'd say, "Get out of the hole," and then fill the hole back in, and then go back to the same spot, dig the same hole. Get back in it, throw the dirt over your head, and then he would tell you to fill it back. And you talk about useless. Digging a hole to fill it back in again. That's about dumb. Amen? It's kind of like some people dealing with stuff in their lives. If you want to know how to get out of a hole, stop digging. Right? You're inside a hole. It's getting too deep for you. Stop digging. Don't dig anymore. It seems like when you're under intense persecution, there's no point to it. It's like it's just pain. It's just anguish. And yet from God's perspective, 
much like the diligence and following orders of that drill sergeant instructing you to drill, dig that hole and you following it, life and death and doing exactly what he says. You see in the battlefield when he says, you better duck, you're going to duck. You need to go that way. You're going to go that way. You see, that hole actually had a purpose. That test was purposeful. You didn't understand it. You hated it. You got blisters from it. But you learned something very deep internally in your soul from the act of digging that stupid hole. And then when the battle comes and the master says, you need to go that way, you're ready to do it without question. And in the military, if you question orders, you're going to be a dead person very quickly. Very quickly. And so he says, look, you're about to be tested. You're going to dig some holes and you're going to fill them back in. And you will have tribulation for ten days, but there's a purpose to it. And it's not what you think. It's the crown of life. And so those tests that we come across, those things that we stand up to, we don't cave in. They're not easy. They're hurtful. They're painful. At times we, we wonder if God even cares. The devil puts us to the test. He's, he's going allow to be allowed to do all kinds of things. Again, just read Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2. You'll see the devil putting to test poor Job. And you kind of wonder, man, that's, that's almost, that's like unfair. Have, I mean, you, you kind of almost question God's motives. He says, have you considered, you know, it's almost like he's t- telling the devil, go ahead, have at him. Can I share something? He was. Have you considered my servant Job? And then he goes on to brag about Job, doesn't he? He is righteous and upright in all of his ways, and on the earth there is not one like him. God was bragging on him. He said, go ahead, put him to test. You remember what Satan's retort was? Satan's conversation back to God was? Just give me his life, and he will curse you to your face. Job proved Satan wrong. Amen? In a test. In an unfair test. In a test that, read that story, you can't even imagine. It's one thing to lose someone very close to you, maybe a spouse or a child. How about your whole family? Every last one of them. And then all of your possessions. Every last one of them. And then your kids, whom you are praying for, while you're praying, a tornado wipes them out in their house. While you're in the process of praying for them. Most of us would be going, time out. I'm done being a Jesus guy. No more God worship for me. Now, Job doesn't handle it perfectly, but he handles it. And in the end, God blesses him tenfold. You're going to be tested. And the church has been tested. 
It's going to continue to be tested. And in it, we should have no fear. The devil's going to try and lure you into his lair. That's what he does. That's why when I somewhat jokingly talk about places like Las Vegas, you know, these casinos along the freeway. Connie and I were driving back from Palm Springs. We had a, a dinner date for for Valentine's Day, and we're coming back, and there it is, Morongo. Now, I don't know if it struck you, but it actually says, morons, go. <laughs> Just saying. But boy, does it gleam in the, in the, in the night sky. And it's like it's all different colors. Woo, lasers. And there's the enemy. Free stakes. No losers here. He's going to try and lure you in. He's going to try and trap you in the system. It's going to seem like, oh, it's just a, just a break. I need a break. And before you know it, the break is broke. Before you know it, it's your house that you've gambled away. Before you know it, that, that, that one drink that you thought you had the liberty to have, there's a whole bunch of them, and you're in the back of Officer Rodman's squad. I don't want to hear about it if it happens. You've been forewarned. You see, he's going to test your character. Because see, your character is who you are when no one sees. Your character is who you are when no one sees. When you're alone. It's what you think when nobody's there. God's testing your character. He's always tested the character of the church. And the church is in a time in history when we need to stand. Because I don't know how much longer we're going to have to do that. Because it's not getting easier, it's getting harder. And though right now, you're not going to leave this place and go to your house, and there's probably not going to be a, a quids force to come and arrest you yet. But there are those in this country that would like to see Sharia law. And there's some that are saying, nah, that's not such a bad thing. You, you think that the restrictions on Christians are bad now. Look at where we're going. When people can no longer pray in Jesus' name, but they can blaspheme in the name of the devil, and praying in Jesus' name is wrong, and screaming every vulgarity they can think of in the name of Satan is okay, we are going the wrong direction. And pretty soon, those of us who name the name of Jesus aren't going to be able to speak at all without the same types of threats. I happen to believe that these ten days of suffering are talking about the Roman emperors. And, and they, there were exactly ten of them. began with Nero in AD 64 and ended with Diocletian in, in AD 312. But let me give you just a few things that happened there. Nero as you all know, burned Rome. And then he blamed it on the Christians. He said it was those stinking, rotten Christians that burned Rome. 
And so after that, he threw the Christians into pits with wild animals. He used them in the Colosseum. He executed Paul, and it is highly likely that he was also responsible for executing Peter. So there's one of them. Domitian, who followed him, used to use thousands of Christians, again, just for sport. I mean, he did everything from impale them on spikes on the side of the road uh, to use them in the gladiatorial games. So for another six years. And he is actually the one that banished John to the island of Patmos. Trajan, who followed him, actually outlawed Christianity. And the great Saint Ignatius was burned at the stake under his rule. Marcus Aurelius tortured and beheaded Christians by the thousands who followed him. Severus burned and crucified and beheaded Christians for another 60 years. And so on it was, down through Valerian, Aurelian, ending with Diocletian. And it's interesting, at the end of the persecution, what the major crime was, owning the scriptures themselves. You couldn't have a copy of the scriptures. And if you were found with a Bible, you were killed, in essence. There would have been scrolls at that time. And so you can see how that persecution that was first physical became then physical and mental and emotional. And finally it ended up with the actual banishment. You could not even possess this. So for ten days. It is kind of a picture of where we're going, isn't it? Do you realize, and and I want you to notice this. I can stand on the street corner of any city in America and get out an issue of some pornographic magazine or novel or whatever and read it cover to cover out loud at the top of my lungs and it will be considered free speech. But if I read my Bible and say, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and unless you name the name of Christ and actually preach the gospel, it is already hate speech. You can be arrested for it. If you go into a government building and pray in Jesus' name, you can be censured for it. You cannot pray in Jesus' name in our military anymore. You are banned from praying in Jesus' name in any official government function in the federal government. You cannot do it. I would say to you that the Word of God, once again, is placed in that same place of it's about to become illegal to really possess it, because where we really possess it is in our hearts. Amen? And then when it's in here, it comes out here. Amen? what happens As Paul would write to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17 18 it says for our light affliction praise God it's but for a moment amen is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory hallelujah but all this has purpose it's working something towards our eternal good For while we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen, verse 18 says there, are eternal. We're looking for eternal things. 
And so God sets a time. And in your case, that time is your life. You may be persecuted. You may be tested. You may be tried. You may be in poverty. You may be in affliction. But the longest period of time it can last is your lifetime while you're here on this earth. That's it. It's limited. It can't go one second longer than your last breath. It's confined to this world. That's why he says, look, you're looking for a crown, a reward. And that reward is eternal. And it comes from a simple thing of being faithful. And so he says here, look, you're, you're going to receive that, that Stephanos. It was the, the Stephanos was a victor's crown. Most of the time it was actually just leaves. It was kind of some branches twisted together and it would be put on the, the head of the victor. But if it was a real big event, it would be a crown made of gold that looked like leaves. It was, it was here. This is this, this new thing that you have accomplished and it's done. One day, you're all going to receive a crown. You're going to get at least one, by the way, when you get there. We're going to see that when you do get to heaven, you're not going to want to keep the crown because the only one there is going to be Jesus that's worthy of glory. And so we'll take those crowns off and say, this one's yours too. But it says here that the Christian's prize, notice this, is the crown of life. What kind of life? It's eternal life. It's a new kind of life. It's not the old life. It's not stuff. It's not things. It's not a big yacht. I, I, you know, somebody wants to give me a yacht. I'll, I'll, as long as somebody will put the fuel in it and I can get somebody who can actually drive. I don't mind having a yacht, I suppose. But you're not getting to take your yacht to heaven. It's staying here. No matter how big it is. Bill Gates has taken none of his billions with him. When he takes his last breath, he's already gotten all he's going to get unless he knows Jesus. And I don't know whether he knows the Lord. I'm not suggesting he does or he doesn't. But I am saying this, if he doesn't, every last thing he has stays here. But for us, the best is yet to come. There's actually a crown that comes later. You see, right now we kind of walk around like, yeah, my crown's made out of tumbleweeds. We used to do that when I was a kid. It's the dumbest thing in the world. We'd take tumbleweeds, and once they get dry, you can kind of shape them, and we'd like squish them on each other's heads and run around the field. We were not that smart. It was kind of like the crown. But one day, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. Can't wait for that crown of eternal life. And if that's the only one you get, you're going to be jumping up and down. You're going to be doing the happy dance. Amen? No matter if Satan lets loose all of the forces of hell on you on this earth, one day you're going to be crowned with the crown of life. I'm pretty sure the, the bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp, was maybe wondering that when he was executed. He personally knew John, and he was actually burned at the stake for his testimony. Now, I need to tell you what that meant at that time. Because the Romans, when they burned somebody at stake, at the stake, did it in a very strange way. It was not like the, the, the Brits did it in England. They were fairly merciful. The, the pyre underneath you was so large that normally you died of asphyxiation before the flames actually really did much to you. 
You had no oxygen. You actually died, and then you were consumed. But for the Romans, what they did was they, they dipped you in oil and literally made you a human candle. And so when they lit the fire, you were literally on fire before you died. That was Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna. He was on fire for the Lord, literally. Amen? I'm not suggesting that that's going to happen to us. But when that happened, if you were looking to the world for your reward, you really got gypped. But if you were looking to heaven for your reward, the moment he took his last breath in those flames... He saw the face of his Savior. And that body that was being fried right there was of no use to him whatsoever. Because the one he had now was fit for glory. And it was crowned with a crown of righteousness. That's why Matthew 10, Jesus said, Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather be afraid of the one who can kill both the body and the soul. And so when you get to heaven, there's actually um, five crowns that we know of that you can receive when you get there. And they're like distinguished service medals. Now, I am patriotic to the core. I absolutely love watching military parades. It just, I tear up. I'm just in awe of what it's taken to give us the freedoms that we have in this country. And I'm indebted to those who have served in the military. And when I see someone, it is hard for me to not look at that, those ribbons on their chest and just go, I wonder what each one of those things means. You know, what are those service bars or those, you know, maybe they were spent time in combat or whatever, or, or you see the really big stuff, you know, maybe a bronze star, a silver star, a Navy cross, something like that, or, or maybe the Congressional Medal of Honor. Go sometime to the Riverside National Cemetery and go to the Medal of Honor Memorial and walk through there and see what it's cost to keep us free. And then think about what it cost Jesus to really set us free. You see, we have an incorruptible crown. We also have a crown of rejoicing. We have the crown of life. The crown of righteousness. And it's not your righteousness. It's not mine. It's His. And then one day we're actually going to be crowned with glory. We're not going to be Christ. We're not even going to be fully like Him. But we're going to share in some of the glory of God. Crowned with His glory. And so I want to ask you a simple question. When God sees you in that last day, will He look at you as a Christian who executed your life, carried out your duties in such a way that your jacket is littered with ribbons for battle and valor and honor for the Lord? People in Smyrna, that absolutely could be said of them. And our passage closes tonight. Here's the 411. You know, that's the 411. Here's the info on this. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice again, it goes back to the plurality of all the churches. Not to just the church at Smyrna, but all the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. 
Now, I'm sure when some people read that, they're like, dude, how many times? You're dead, right? If you're dead, you're dead. Dead is dead. No, actually, there's a second death, and it's way worse than the first death, unless you know Jesus. You see, there's really two deaths you can experience. One is physical, and one is spiritual. And this passage deals with that second death, the spiritual death. We die physically, but in that second death, we die a spiritual death for all eternity. We are separated from God. And I'll tell you what, death in the physical realm is nothing compared to death in the spiritual realm. And so for each one of us, there's really a choice that we can make. Do I want to be born again? Born twice? So that I only die once? You see, because my, my soul and my spirit are, are going to be separated out for the Lord if I'm born again. But if I'm not born again, then I experience that second death, which my soul and my spirit are not only separated from my physical body, but they're separated from the only source of love in the universe, God himself. Forever. The second death is mentioned four times in the book of Revelation. And he's really talking to to us today, even. You see, Jesus gave us victory over the second death. He defeated that death. We're all still going to die, amen? The way he defeated death is by defeating the second death. I don't really care if he takes this, this temple home, this tent home. This, this is going to die. But what he does, he says, you're never going to taste that second death. You won't go through that separation. You see, are you born once or are you born twice? If you're born once, you've got a serious problem. Because you're going to taste the second death. And it comes at a very pivotal time in the book of Revelation. It's at the great white throne judgment. And that judgment, by the way, is only for those who don't know the Lord. Christians aren't going to be there at that judgment. It's only to judge those who do not know Jesus. And it's at that judgment that hell is finally opened up and Satan and all of his minions go in along with everybody who does not know the Lord, separated forever from God. You see that first death? Yeah, that's something to worry about, I suppose. I don't drive down the freeways going, boy, I hope somebody hits us head on. You know, I don't really relish the thought of dying, I suppose you could say that. But what I'm really glad I'm free from is that eternal separation, that second death. I, I think that anyone who's born on this earth who goes through that, truly, as Jesus said, would be better off that they had never been born. It would have been better that they never tasted of any life than go through that. And so he says at the end, you're going to be crowned. But the biggest thing that you're going to get through all of that persecution is you're not going to taste that second death. You're going to be with the Lord forever. And that is something worthy of saying hallelujah to. Amen?
Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful, Lord, that in this amazing plan that sent Jesus to this earth to die on Calvary's cross, Lord, that by believing in him we might be born again, and in being born again, that, that second time, Lord, means we're only going to die once. We're only going to have to give up these mortal bodies which are crumbling and perishing. But we'll have eternal life, abundant life, a blessed life, a glorious life. Wherein is your presence, and in that presence is the fullness of joy. And so, God, we thank you for loving us that much that we could trade in these earthly tents, Lord, for the glories of heaven, all because of the blood of Jesus. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we just thank you for saving us. Thank you for blessing us. And we pray that you would use us in this world to make sure that the world has an opportunity to know that you love them, that you died for them, and that they can have that eternal life, that crown of life as well. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.